0: This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's Community Access Media Organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Kia ora and
1: welcome to Creatively Wired. This broadcast is on Free FM 89.0 and is also available wherever podcasts are found. Creatively Wired, is a moment in time where we chat with artists about what makes them tick. We will explore the way they work, what they are thinking about, and the many varied nuances of the creative process. Make yourself comfortable, and let's have a chat with some awesome people who are Creatively Wired.
0: Welcome everyone. Here we are with another episode of Creatively Wired. I'm Paul Bradley, and I'm here with Jeremy Mayo, and today we have a very interesting guest. I'm very excited to be here with Richard von Sturmer. So Richard is an artist, he's a poet, a playwright, a filmmaker, a musician, and I think we could probably keep adding to that list. So welcome, Richard. It's good to have you here.
2: Welcome, Paul. It's it's good to be here. Uh, Actually, I'm not not a musician, but I do write songs. I work with musicians. Right, okay. So, uh, yeah. Right. My, my musical ability is fairly limited.
0: Right. Although you have been in bands. Yes. Yeah. I've yeah. been a singer
2: in v- bands. Uh, one of the first New Zealand punk bands in the seventy-seven, seventy-eight, called the Plague.
0: Right. Yeah. Oh. Wow. Yep. And uh, um, the uh, probably the biggest or m- most known song. There's no depression in New Zealand?
2: Uh, that came a little bit later. It came with Blam Blam Blam. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so I wrote the lyrics and Don McGlash and did the music.
0: Right. Okay. So um, maybe, um, I mean, there's, as, as I said, there's quite a list there of different creative practices. Um, maybe, do you want to talk us through how, maybe what came first or how did you get started on this journey?
2: Oh, like well, I, I was born in 1957 in Devonport on the North Shore, and I went to Westlake Boys High School, and I suppose I, I I wrote a play called a Passion Play, which was a sort of a Christ on the Cross, but it was a slightly perverse version of the Crucifixion of Christ. That was in the sixth form year. And um, Harry Sinclair, who was one of the um, front lawn, he was a year or two behind me. And he also, he did another play, I think called Chewing a Tulip. So he put that on at Westlake Boys High School. Uh, And then in the seventh form, I began to make Super 8 movies. I made a a vampire film and a, a heavily surrealist film. Super 8. So I, I sort of, and then I, I, I was writing sort of bad poetry too and which continued to my, through my university years. So I began as making films and writing plays and that continued and then I did, I began to write performance pieces both for myself and for groups that I formed and I became a performer and then a singer with with the play, the punk rock group. Mm. And um, one of my formative uh, I suppose influences was my, I, I, I had a, a magic uncle who lived in Sydney and had come to Auckland every once in a while and um, bringing really neat toys from Sydney, which were a lot more sophisticated than Auckland Auckland toys that you could get at the time in the in the sixties. He once bought me a a crab, which had suction pads on its legs and it could actually you wound you wound it up and it crawled up the bathroom wall.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, he was really cool uncle. And at one stage, when I was about 14 or 15, on um, one of his visits, I tentatively showed him some of my poems, which I would never show to my parents. And he sort of looked at me, he sort of looked at me, and said, hmm, you should think about writing songs. So, because um, I think at that point I was rhyming. Uh, and so, yeah, I began to write songs. Mm.
0: So... Would it be fair to say that the, maybe the writing is the, uh, the thread that connects these yeah, different def- practices? Yeah,
2: definitely. Uh, it's a thread that runs all through my work, and I consider myself primarily a writer. Hmm.
1: And so the, the early work that you were writing at high school, yeah, was that encouraged by the school, or you oh, just no. you just put it on yourself. And no, that
2: was wonderful. That was wonderful. I was at Westlake Boys High School, and the emphasis—it was very conservative. Was it was a boys' school. The girls lived down below in, in their own world, Westlake girls. So that uh, no, was very much the emphasis was on rugby, and um, canoeing. Right. Um, so the arts were not acknowledged at all. Although we had some really good English teachers who did encourage drama. But even though we put on plays, it was never formally acknowledged.
1: And you put them on at the school?
2: Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of... I think it was really good because there's a lot you could really react against at a conservative school.
0: <laughs> but I, I guess if you're already kind of on the outside, then you might as well be right on the outside, right? Now.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and, and you, you know, when you're 15, 16, you begin to see through the hypocrisy of the powers that be because at that time, it was the um, Holt Horatius Tours, the heart movement, mm. the protests against the Vietnam War. And in the fifth form, I had a, a born-again Christian maths teacher, and uh, he had a few acolytes in the class. And they all brought along their one-way Jesus buttons, which were really um quite prominent at the times. And so one time we, uh, I and a friend, came to the maths class, and we were wore- wearing our Holt all-racious tour buttons. And we were told to take them off, that, <coughs> that they weren't allowed in class. Right. Although they, you know, they could wear their one-way Jesus buttons. And when you're 15, that sort of thing really great.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So they, they may have accidentally radicalized you. Yeah, from a young they radicalized age. me. Yeah,
2: <laughs> and my radicalization um, reached its peak when uh, this is a well known story for people who know me. Uh, reached its peak when I was in the seventh form, and I and a, a friend, Chris Tennant, we thought you know we need to earn some money, so we started a, a private investigation investigation business, just the two of us. And we got a client. And this client wanted, uh, he'd fell in love with a stripper and he'd wanted to find out where the stripper was. So he, he employed us and we um, started to go around the strip joints in Auckland as two <laughs> 17-year-old boys. And then suddenly we realised that we were way out of our depth. So we, um, <laughs> we, um, we closed down the private eye business. And But then we we read about this um, pie-in-the-eye from the States that you'd pay someone to put a to put a pie in the face of of someone that you, you you wanted to put a pie in the face of. So we started Pie in the Eye International and advertised it on the North Shore Times that, you know, give us five dollars and a name and we'll put a pie in the face of the, <laughs> <laughs> the person you nominate. Okay. So we advertised it. First first response we got was from a psychologist at Auckland University, and he said, well, I'll pay, I'll pay you guys $5 if you put a, a pie in the face of Robert Muldoon, who <laughs> 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 was then the, the uh, leader of the opposition. Right. So, yeah, that was that was our first hit. We put a pie in the face of Muldoon.
0: So you, you, yeah, actually, you managed it? Yeah,
2: we managed it. I drove the getaway car, and Chris <laughs> actually put the pie in Muldoon's face. It's amazing.
1: Did you have to take, like, photographic evidence? Or was no, it just oh your no. word? No, it got in the paper. Oh,
2: yeah. But, um, and the crazy thing was, this is in, you know, 74, 75, uh, we rang up Thea Muldoon, his wife, and said, you know, oh, I'm not, I think I was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, a businessman and uh, I, I just wanted to check on when Mr. Muldoon was going to be flying back to Auckland for a business meeting we we're going to have for him. And she told told it, told me when his flight would arrive at Auckland <laughs> <laughs> Airport. So um, Mr. Muldoon was coming down the, the stairs from the domestic terminal. His driver had gone to get his car, so he was isolated on the stairs. Uh, Chris came up. Behind him, he was wearing a trench coat. Tapped him on the shoulder. Miss and said, "Eh," and then Chris put the pie in his face and <laughs> and ran for it. And I was in my Morris thousand uh, at the Shell petrol station, a little <laughs> bit away from the airport. And I saw in the rear vision mirror Chris being chased by two overweight security guards. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris jumped in the car, and we sort of made our way back to the North Shore. Through uh, through the back roads of the mungaree but we <laughs> eventually the police tracked us down because we'd advertised in the paper and
0: all oh, right <laughs> uh,
2: and we had to apologize to Muldoon uh we had to go to his, his house and um uh, say we were sorry we had a lawyer with us and he was okay uh he he wanted to downplay it he didn't want to the embarrassment. So he got the New Zealand Herald virtually to shut it down. There wow. was a, just a little report on page three about it. Wow. Because the Labour the Labor government wanted it on the front page to embarrass Muldoon. Right. So it sort of got political very quickly. Yeah,
0: and right. Did you have any other clients for this business? Or was that, that, was that it. the one and only? <laughs> the one and
2: only. And, I, yeah, that was the end of my political career. I don't think I could get... Any better than that? So. You, you peaked earlier. I in peaked earlier. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Fantastic. <coughs> so we can add, you know, maybe political performance arts into that yeah. list as well.
2: And then we did. Um, after that, we had. Uh, then, I went to Europe uh, in 70, 77 and lived in Italy, and then in London, which was that point was the peak of the the punk scene in London. Mm which I sort of threw myself into as a 19-year-old. And then when I came back at the end of 77 to New Zealand, that's when we formed The Plague, which was a political, theatrical punk band.
0: Mm, mm.
1: And so that was the first punk band
2: in New Zealand? It was one of the first, yeah. I think there was The Stranglers, The Suburban Reptiles, and us in Auckland.
1: And so how did you go about... Creating a, Was there a scene? Were, were there people who were into it? Or was it still oh, yeah, kind of yeah, unknown? Definitely.
2: Yeah. We were very much the political end of the punk spectrum at that point. And we began as a group of artists. Nobody could play their instruments. We had a, an arts professor playing saxophone, another writer on guitar, sculptor on saxophone, actually he could play the, the, the saxophone. And then gradually... Um, Sort of the writers and artists fell away and we got good young musicians. uh, Ian Grillroy on drums, uh, Mark Bell, who's a wonderful guitarist, who went on to be Blam Blam Blam, with Tim Mann, who was also in the play. Tim and uh, Mark and Don formed Blam Blam Blam. So though we were quite crude to begin with musically, a lot of that carried on... uh, into Blam Blam Blam, which I wasn't part of, but they did do several of my songs, and they were far better musicians. And yeah, it sort of fulfilled what the play had started out on a musical, more well, musical footing.
1: Mm. And so, when you approach writing lyrics for a song, mm. is is there something particular that you're responding to, or is it just depend on the, the oh, moment?
2: That was my early days. Yeah, we had a song about Mr. Muldoon. We had a song about Frank Gill who was a conservative politician at the time, who wanted to ban the contraceptive pill. Wow. (laughs) He was very Catholic. So we had a song called Frank Gill is an Idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Straight to the point.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Straight to the point,
2: yeah.
0: Right. So, So you started in... Poetry originally as a young person and then you are like, okay, I can write these songs.
2: I morphed into songwriting and when I came back from Europe I also did a series of solo performances and then we had a cabaret group I met my my wife at that point in 1978, Charlotte Wrightson and so we were in different performance groups and then in the 80s, mid-80s we had a duo, performing duo called The Humanimals. Which is human and animal, mm. scrunched together, and that was a way of telling stories using masks and costumes and uh, slides, colour slides, and films. We made our own super eight films, and we toured for about two years. We toured New Zealand and Australia as the Human Animals. Mm.
0: Mm. So, was your one of your main contributions writing for that as well? Yeah, I wrote yeah.
2: most of the material, yeah. which was. Uh, yeah, sort of poetic dramas.
0: Okay, yeah.
2: Based on um, one of the sort of templates that I had in the back of my mind was Japanese no theater. And the, the no drama uses uh, a lot of masks. It's a mask drama mm. and very poetic. Mm. And has a lot of uh, Zen Buddhism in it. And at that time, uh, in the mid-'80s, I began both I and and my wife, she became married in 1986. Um, we began to study Zen Buddhism too.
1: And how did you find that? Were there, was there a place to study that in New Zealand? Or no,
2: no. Uh, we sort of came to Zen through the arts, through haiku, writing of haiku and, um, and no theatre. Because Zen... Uh, the principles of Zen sort of permeates all aspects of Japanese culture, mm. with its uh, connection to nature, its simplicity, uh, and so. In eighty six, we decided that we we should um, really study Zen at a, a Zen Buddhist center. So we went. Eventually, we went to the states. We did a workshop in eighty six at the Rochester Zen Center. And then at the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, we actually lived at the Rochester Zen Center in upstate New York and worked with a teacher, our teacher. uh, At at that point, he was Sensei Bowden College. Sensei just means teacher. Mm. So we worked with uh, our Zen teacher for about 12 years. Wow. Mm. And uh, my wife became ordained as a, a Zen priest She's now uh, Sensei Amala Wrightson, and in beginning of two thousand and four, we came back to New Zealand permanently, and we set up the Auckland Zen Center hmm. in Onihanga, and we've been going there. We've been uh, the Zen Center's been in Onihanga now for sixteen years, hmm. and my wife is uh, now sanctioned as a, a Zen teacher.
0: So the when you were originally attracted to Zen, was there a creative interest in there or was this?
2: Yeah, near? you know, the creative interest you know, we sort of absorb Zen and Zen Buddhism, because you can't really separate Zen and Buddhism. Hmm. Zen is the 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 school of Buddhism that puts the emphasis on meditation hmm. just sitting. Uh, turning inward. So um we absorb a lot through haiku and through no drama, as I said.
0: Mm. So it wasn't a radical um, turn from what you are doing. It was more that you, you found yourself going in that direction through the art forms that you already interested yeah. in. Yeah.
2: Also, what, um, actually, going back to my uncle, I sort of came back to New Zealand in the beginning of 1977 um, after having sort of bronchitis in London during a London winter. So I came back fairly fragile and my uncle had a encyclopedia of spirituality at his place in D.Y. on Sydney's North Shore. So I was flicking through that. And all the uh, sort of little sort of entries that really took my attention were all Buddhist ones, and Zen Buddhist ones in particular. Bodhidharma, who introduced Zen. He was uh, Indian uh, Zen's first ancestor who came... To, Uh, from India to China in about 450 A.D., and he established the Zen sect in China. It was known as Chan. And then um, Huayi Kher, who was the uh, sixth patriarch of Zen, Chinese patriarch. And Koan's mentioned, you know, these paradoxical Zen questions that you work with in Zen training. So all these entries really um, sparked my interest in Zen.
0: Mm. And there, uh, there is a um, strong tradition of writing in Zen of course You know you mentioned these, mm. the koan and then the other writings so, yeah. yeah,
2: there's collections of koans And like the mumon kan and the hikigan roku uh, And each for each case, for each uh, case to be investigated There's a verse at the end That the the, the compiler, the master who's compiled the koan collections will will write It's like a pointer for um, the particular koan. Mm,
0: mm. And then, of course, poetry as well. Um, Zen poetry is a a, you know huge area of Mm. of of work happening there. So, were you sort of drawn towards that of like, oh, I could you know I can develop in that way, or did it sort of feel like, oh, this is actually already where I am. I just hadn't put that.
2: No, I think what Zen does offer too is a way to see into your in Zen Buddhist terms is your own true nature, the, mm. the true self that is no self mm. so uh, it's it's a very uh, it's very intense practice uh, we did a lot of um, 7 day retreats meditating for 12, 14 hours a day and um, really turning the mind inward mm. Mm. and so it was, yeah, so it's Zen practice is is demanding.
0: Mm. Mm. And I'm, I'm interested in how that sits with, you know, the, the idea of no self sits with an, an artist in the Western world in 2020, which is often very much about, you know, I am this person and this is yeah. my work and this is how, you know, th- these... Particularly often, I think in our Western world, it's we are so strongly identified with the things we do. Mm. Um, is there a tension there, or is that oh, something you play with, or? No,
2: I think well, um, a lot of Zen practice is sort of deconstructing the ego, to see that there's no permanent, fixed self. That everything is flux, everything is changing. So there's nothing that you can really pinpoint as being an I. Uh, Am I the body? No, this body ages. Am I the mind? No, the mind changes. Memories come and go. So it's a really fascinating uh, exploration of what is the self. And the famous Zen master, Dogen, a Japanese Zen master, said, to study the way is to study the self. And to study the self is to forget the self. Mm -hmm. So Zen Buddhism is a way of forgetting the self. Um, It's a bit like if you imagine your mind is a big furniture store, absolutely cluttered with furniture, beds, dresses, uh, sofas, all higgledy-piggledy. And through meditation, clearing the mind, you gradually remove a lot of items of furniture so there's more space Mm. you never get rid of everything but you can become a bit more spacious and if you're more spacious and if you're a little bit more empty then you're ready to perceive the world Mm. Um, you're you're in the present moment all your senses are totally open and you're ready to receive what's out there Mm. and that's great for a writer
0: so creatively does that help remove maybe some of these false kind of filters you know there's the sort of classic mm. stories like um, you know people mistaking the rope on the ground for the snake for or a snake whatever. yeah that's his end story. Uh, yeah, yeah yeah so d- d- do you find that it brings that strength to your work
2: uh, I think you're remaining in the present moment yeah you try and see things just as they are mm. without judging them without getting caught up in, in thoughts about the, the past or the future, but just, yeah, just being in the present moment. And that's um, one of the projects, uh, because I'm at the moment I'm the writer in at the University of Waikato. So to get the residency, I pitched them last year two projects. One was to write uh, 300 prose poems, It's a work I'd already started. uh, um, It's going to be a book called Slender Volumes, and each prose poem is only seven lines. Right. And so I finished that in June. And the other project which they really liked was, they said that I'd um, explore small towns and geographic features in the broad Waikato region. And that's what I'm doing. Each month I choose a different location and I just go there and spend time there and just see what happens. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do do, um, having said that, I do do um, background research and I meet with people and talk with people. And that's an important part. But also it's a part of just going to a place and seeing what catches your attention, what draws you.
0: Mm. So would you, what, what does that look like? Would you just kind of wander down the main street? Yeah, or? yeah, I do that.
2: Yeah. It's a mixture of prose, poetry and photography. Mm. Uh, last, i made several films, short films, but the last three or four years I've been doing more still photography, sort of training my eye. So there will probably be uh, in this work, it's 12 chapters, 12 different locations, probably be about 90... 90 photos. I do about between six to nine photos for each place. So last month I was in Te And And um, so it's also a matter of, of tying things together, of uh, d- different threads. Uh, before I went to Te I usually I'm back in Auckland for the weekend, but one weekend I, had, I was in Hamilton and I went to Hamilton Zoo and while I was there, uh, they've got a great rhinoceros enclosure and they had some baby rhinoceros and some full-grown adult rhinoceros as well. And there was a little boy and the little boy was suddenly shouted, the rhinoceros has got a big bum, the rhinoceros has got a big bum. So I worked that into a poem about the <laughs> the rhinoceros' <laughs> big bum. The, big, the the bum is grey and it's, it's, you know in the poem it becomes as vast as the universe. Okay, so I wrote this little sort of... I, I did a series of Hamilton Zoo poems and the rhinoceros with the big bum was one of them. And so I'm walking down the streets in Tekawiti last month and what do I see wheeled out in the front of the store but this huge... Sculpture of a rhinoceros, lifelike rhinoceros in the middle of Tekawiti. <laughs> so I immediately took a photo of that. And there was a workman sort of doing something the street next door to it. it was, it's a really fun photo of this very realistic rhinoceros uh, in a doorway, shop doorway in Tekawiti. Turns out it's, it was a carpet place. Right. And uh, they, one of their main brands was for rhino carpet. <laughs>
0: I think I've seen one of these rhinos in yeah, Hamilton, I think, Actually, yeah, okay. I think there's one yeah. in Tiwamutu <laughs> as okay, well. So yeah, it's,
2: yeah, it's, right. It's, it's a Waikato thing, but um, so that we, so it's time to get the you know odd things like that. And
0: yeah, yeah. I think often there is something a little bit surreal about small towns. I yeah, think, I think
2: anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> they each got their own flavour. Uh, I don't. Um, I don't go to anywhere that I'm not drawn to. That I I always have to have a positive feeling about it. Right. And so this month um, is Huntley, mm-hmm. which is I've been I've been working my way up to Huntley. Huntley's a challenge, and just last week I had and I, I I met with the mayor of Huntley mm-hmm. and had a talk with him. There's a lot of Huntley hot spots at the moment. Uh, some guy uh, burning rubbish at a landfill out in the Huntley area. Lake that's threatened with being poisoned from runoff. So, Huntley's got a lot of problems and it's got some really positive things too. So, Mm. it's good to talk that through with the mayor. The other area is uh, when I started this project, I suddenly realized that I needed to know a lot more history of the Waikato. And there's Vincent O'Malley's great book, his his tome, The Waikato Wars. Mm so that's that's been important uh to read that to get background and one of the chapters was on Kiiki mm-hmm. little town um just near Tayamotu. so I went to Kiiki for a while and uh walked uh over the farmland where the Battle of Arakao is, and just to get a sense of that and uh it was summer. Really hot, and you could really still feel the energy in the land. So I realised that I needed guidance because I'm I am Pakeha, and um, but I really felt drawn to the history of the Waikato. So I sort of um, contacted Tom Roa, mm. who's a great kamatawa and associate professor at the Auckland University, and Tom was very generous and took a a day to drive me around uh, the Waikato to visit sites that are important to Ngāti Maniapoto. So that was great. And um, then I sort of, through a friend, through my cousin Deborah, I um, spent some time with Rumu Puke, who's a great, you must probably know Rumu, he's a great carver. Mm. He's sort of brought back the art of Maori carving using stone tools mm, that's
0: right with the parapara. para yeah right with the yeah.
2: parapara. yeah that's he's the mm. the genius behind those mm. gardens, so it was great to spend time with the and then for uh Tekuiti, I spent time with kingi Kingi Turner, who's the chairperson of the um Tekuiti Pa, the big Mariah. And Te Kuiti, which is the principal marae for Nāti Maniapoto, so um, it was really great to get uh, the history of Maniapoto through um, Kingi, Kingi's version. So um, that's so I feel like I need that grounding.
0: Mm. Mm. So uh, the, I imagine creatively, it's very interesting to think about these layers where you've got on one hand. You know, the, the casual daily observations yeah. of workmen and, and rhinoceroses. <laughs> and on the other hand, there's Yeah, you've these, got all
2: these layers of history.
0: There's these undercurrents which are often incredibly heavy.
2: You were there, well, the history's still there. Right, but, yeah. Um, right. A friend, um, Murray Edmonds, um, pointed me to a great book, Dancing with the King, which is the rise and fall of the king country by uh, Michael Belgrave. And that's that's a great book too, which I'm reading at the moment. Just just to um, so, as uh, a, f- a friend of mine, a writer friend said, "Oh, you're you're moving into new territory with your writing in that I'm um, uh, referencing historical uh, aspects, uh, which I had not done before." So that that feels good. It's an interesting area, and I have to um, tread carefully. But I can't help. But I can't. You know, you can't ignore the history of the land.
1: Hmm. Hmm. I'm quite interested in the the process of creating the poems that you talk about in the, the 300 poems. Oh,
2: prose poems. The prose yeah. poems,
1: with them all being seven lines. So yeah. it's a really interesting creative restriction that mm. it's a seven-line poem. What are you thinking about with those and, and how particular are you about the selection of words when it is so constrained,
2: uh, I really like working with constraints. You know, I, I I do write haiku, which is three lines, and tanka, and a longer verse form, which is five lines. So I'm always drawn to short verse forms and short short stories. Um, the the framework for to generate the 300 prose poems. There's a um, Soto Zen collection of. Um, Actually, it's, it's Zen master Dogen's collection of 300 koans. Uh, Dogen was a 13th century um, Zen teacher, and he, he compiled a collection of 300 koans. He didn't write a commentary or verse, he just did, compiled the collection. And so I based my 300 prose poems on the 300 koans. So each... In
1: response to in each In response,
2: yes. Yeah, so it was a creative oh, right, response. Oh. So each day, I just clear my mind, read the the particular koan of the day, koan du jour, and uh, write a seven-line prose poem in response. And it's, so it's just a way of storytelling. So sometimes I might, a memory, a personal memory, might come up. Sometimes it might be a surreal scene. Sometimes it might be a story from the past. A fable, or it might just be like an absur- a sketch from life. Mm. So it's all different threads that I could tie together through this, through working on three hundred koans.
1: And so that was a daily practice.
2: It was a daily practice, yeah. Most of the time, yeah.
1: Oh, and so do you have a uh, like a daily creative process that you go through reliably, or or is it a little bit more flexible?
2: Oh, uh, it's very flexible. Um, but I am the writer in resident at the moment at, at the university, so I always feel like that each day each work, each you know I should be working on my writing. <laughs> I'm a writer, so <laughs> get that to work <laughs> so yes, yeah, so I you know as that's a writer in residence, I write every day, it could be a poem, it could be going out and just taking a walk and taking notes for what what may be a, a future piece, taking a photo, yeah. Mm.
0: Because writing is putting pen to paper or finger to keyboard, but it's also, as you say, it is all those other times when are not physically writing as well, isn't it? Yeah, a,
2: a good tip is, is uh, I got from some, somewhere, is to keep the hands busy if you're a writer. Uh, it's physical work. I usually write with pen and paper mm. and then go onto the computer. So if you can't, if you can't write, mm, go outside, you know, do a bit of gardening. Uh, pull some weeds, or do the dishes, <laughs> wash the dishes. It's a good sort of zen, sort of you know, just wash the dishes, just wash the dishes. Keep the hands busy, and then um, keep the keep the body in motion, and then after a while, you know, go back to the writing and see what happens.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you incorporate sitting meditation as part of the creative process as well? Is, is that kind of built into uh, writing?
2: No, I'm more writing at the moment. I, um, sort of, in the last few years, I, um, developed sort of hip problems and sciatica problems, and I had a disjointed pelvis. Um, so I don't sit as much as I should now, because it's actually painful. It's sort of a little bit of a paradox. So, you know, I, I do meditate, but not, not each day now, hmm. depending on how my body feels. Hmm.
1: But there's, I guess, after years of having yeah. done it, there's a kind of inherent mindfulness and
2: presence. Yeah. So, so I try and keep in the present moment, you know, walking or sitting on the bus, like i caught the bus here today. Yeah. Hmm.
0: And there's a – I'm curious with these super short poems. Yeah, well, they're,
2: they're prose poems. So the actual – it's, it's a really weird uh, – I, I like lim- liminal zones. I like merging things. So a prose poem is not – a poem mm. because it's prose the format is prose but it has a poetic texture or a poetic underpinning right so it's not just sort of conventional um prose prose it has a poetic mm. aspect
0: mm, mm. right so it's sort of in mm. between these spaces yeah
2: it's more writers yeah. are exploring the prose poem um i suppose it sort of blurs with flash fiction which i've never really got my head around um but Tracy Slaughter, who's at the who's a great writer and who's on the English department staff, uh, she sort of said that you know, you know, um prose poetry is, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a version of flash fiction. Right. Which yeah. is good. Yeah. It's it's a very, traditionally the French it's been a very um a very sort of uh literary form in in French literature and also in Japanese literature too. Mm. Like an accepted form. Not so much in English, but that's changing.
0: Does it take more work to write less words? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes. Yeah. So I'm a painter, so I, I sometimes okay, yeah. think I can create a big complicated painting in some ways that's easier. If I distill it down to just a few elements, then those elements have to bear up to a lot of weight.
2: Yeah, every, every word's important. Yes, yeah, so, um, yeah, a crystallization process. So, in the end, you get these sort of crystalline pieces. Well, hopefully, crystalline pieces. But you have to go through a, quite a bit of work, um, mineral work, to get there.
0: Mm. And do you start on a poem and then work through to completion, or do you have a, a notebook with
2: I have a notebook. 20
0: poems on the go? Or how does that
2: Yeah, I have a notebook. So, I'm always interested in what people are saying. I, I write down sort of snatches of conversation, uh, signs, odd signage. Uh, things that catch my eye. Yes, yeah, so I have notebooks and notebooks. And every so often, you know, you, you trawl through some of your old notebooks to see if anything will spark a piece. Mm, mm. So that that's a good thing. If you're a writer, um, you should always have a pen notebook with you. <laughs> that's your trade. And it's great, you know, you don't, you know I've worked in um, musical groups and I've humped amplifiers and speakers up, <laughs> up sort of staircases and um, but being a writer you're free of all that you've just got your a pen and a notebook
1: Very portable
2: Yeah, so extremely portable <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm envious yeah. <laughs> Although you know, visual artists do that with sketchbooks as yeah. well but yeah.
2: yeah, so like 007 license to write yeah. <laughs> It's much harder
1: to carry a piano around with you <laughs> yeah, That's right <laughs> Um. Throughout all your your varied artistic mm. practice, do you think alongside writing as the kind of core mm.
2: um,
1: medium of exploration, is there a kind of central theme that transfers through or is it kind of more this is what I was exploring when I was a punk and this is what I was exploring uh, at, when I was doing the Zen thing and this is what I'm exploring now? Is it kind of sectional or is it is there a through line?
2: Uh Mm. I think it's one of, I'm interested in mixing the inner and the outer, the inner world and the outer world. So how those two worlds intersect is, for a lot of people I think that's the real creative process, is trying to find something universal and something very personal. So yeah, that's that's what I've always worked on, and also um, to give good images. I think um, Ezra Pound says, "It's you know, it's it nearly takes a lifetime to produce one good image," which may be a tad overstating it, but (laughs) (laughs) but you know we're all bombarded with so many cruddy, crass images. You know, and I do it too, um, flicking through Facebook. There's some good stuff and some bad stuff. But also, especially with advertising, we're just media-saturated. So I think part of the work of being a writer, working in poems and prose and visual images, is to produce really good, interesting images that will really capture the imagination of the reader or the viewer. So so a lot of my, you know... Um, get back to your question, a lot of my um, ongoing exploration has been is an exploration into image
1: Right. so there's a kind of a visual underpinning to yeah. it rather than a sonic one because I know that there's some poets who it's the sound of the word
2: uh, that, that's that, very
1: important that
2: too, yeah I always um, when I'm working on a poem or a prose poem when it's sort of finished I always read it out loud so the oral part is that's very important too. Mm. Yeah.
0: So that do you do you start with images in the mind's eye, or maybe from captured from your you know your, yeah. your trips into the world, and then build words around that, or is yeah. it more that you start with the words and then see what images
2: uh, uh, emerge? Both, both. Mm. You, can, you can work both ways. Mm. I don't. Uh, I work with at the moment. I work with a a friend who's a filmmaker and musician, Gabriel White. And we've got a band called the Floral Clocks. And you can check us out on Bandcamp. You just go to Bandcamp, Floral Clocks. And we've done three albums. Wow. Um, Desert Fire, which was our first one, A Beautiful Shade of Blue. And we've just, uh, last year, really this year, we put out Gas Giant, which is our third album. And it started out with Gabriel was putting music. He's a musician and a singer and uh, I write the lyrics, he started out by putting music to my words, to some of my poems, and then I began to write lyrics for him. And then at a certain point, he started to produce the music, and I'd write to, to his music. Right. So we go backwards and forwards, and I really like that. Sometimes the words come first, and sometimes mm. the music comes first.
1: And so, I mean, as a musician myself, I find that really interesting, the... Creation of the words after the music. Yeah. Um, What is, what's your kind of working process or your thought process when you're unpicking a sound to write to?
2: Well, it's the rhythm. I'm a really rhythmic writer. So I, 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 um, I've got one, one ear, one part of me is, you know, when I've got music to write to is, is, working on the rhythm, what's rhythmically there, and the other time, other part is what melody, what, what's the melody that goes in and out of the rhythm and trying to match that with words. And other times it maybe is just what the atmosphere of, yeah. the, of the music is. What atmosphere is this piece of music creating and how can I mirror that with words?
0: And, and does that pass through a visual language as well in your mind? or is No, it, it's
2: sometimes sometimes I'll give you an example. For 13 years, I worked, when we came back to New Zealand and, and established the Auckland Zen Centre, my wife was a Zen priest, so she really was running the centre. I was helping out, but one of us had to earn a living. And I just by chance um, got a job, data entry with the Ministry of Education in 2014. Ended up working with a great team and. Uh, English English speakers of other languages, the ESOL team at the Ministry of Education in Auckland and worked there for 13 years. Uh, I worked four days a week. I had one day for writing. And it was great because that gave us some, a regular income. But one time the officers are in Mount Eden. I was on a train and suddenly turned up uh, I'd spent we'd spent time in Nevada in the States camping I just started chanting on the train, Nevada, da-da, Nevada, da-da. And, and then I wrote some more lines. Nevada, da-da, Nevada, da-da, Frank Sinatra is a cactus. <laughs> and, then, and that that became a, a, a song on the Floral Clock's second album called Nevada, da-da. And um, gave rid at the words. It's a very surrealistic song. Bodies are buried under the sand. Inza, just keep those doggies rolling into the void. Nevada, da-da, Nevada, da-da, nada, nada, Nevada, da-da. And I was actually chanting that just last week because at one point it looked like the state of Nevada was going to <laughs> flip things <laughs> for the Democrats. And, you know, you um, you can't, um, Trump's impervious to prayer, to good prayer. He's such a despicable guy. But I, so, uh, I, th- I thought I'll try a little bit of voodoo. I'm going to really chant Nevada da da, Nevada da da to get the fire out. I, I, I think it helped. I really think it helped. We can all thank you for the, uh, yeah. the
0: outcome. So,
2: well, you know, there's a lot of stuff at the moment about that. But, yeah, I think I did my bit for mm, the presidential you. Yeah. elections. <laughs> uh,
1: so when you, you, you've got uh, so many things that you're working on, what happens if you get creatively stuck?
2: Oh, yeah. What I should mention is that being a writer is, you know, it's a solitary occupation, but like maybe being a painter. Mm. So I really like collaborations. Um, I really, uh, I really enjoy so working, you know, working with Gabriel on music. Uh, at the moment, I'm doing song lyrics to a film by David Blythe. A well-known New Zealand filmmaker and we've collaborated on a number of different projects. So I'm, I'm writing some song lyrics for his new film and I, I may appear in the film as an alien. Uh, <laughs> I, I have a friend uh, from from the Ministry of Education, Adele Salmanzadeh uh, who's an Iranian, who was an Iranian refugee who came to New Zealand as a 15-year-old and he's a great Painter also in the uh, Persian miniature tradition, and he did some illustrations to one of my book of one of my book of poems, and so um, I'm I continue to write some poems to some of his paintings, mm. and we'll we'll have another collaboration soon. So yeah, I'd really like collaborating.
0: So is that quite a quite a motivating yeah. factor for you? Or if, if you feel that like... yeah, if you feel
2: stuck in your own work, then. Mm. Let's have a work with this person or yeah, let's see what Id- what ideas we can generate.
1: in hmm. And that collaborative process, how does that work? Is that like working separately but inspired by one another? Or is yeah. it in the same room together?
2: No, probably at the moment, because the uh he left the Ministry of Education um last year to to work on his to work on his art. So he's in Gisborne. so uh yeah. So it's working from a distance. Same thing with David Blythe. He um, David gave me the script to his new film Night Freaks, and um, I started to write some 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 lyrics because he decided at one point that the the film should be a musical. <laughs> so and he's got some really good musicians: of, uh, Jed Town, he's a well-known Auckland musician, and Andrew McLennan, yep. who was part of the Plague and uh, and went on to to form Pop Mechanics. So I'm working um, with with Andrew um, writing lyrics for, for David's films. So yeah, that's great.
1: That's awesome. It's great to to be able to kind of have that um, shared collaborative uh, process. Um, so, sort of following on from that, w- what's the the hardest thing for you about being a writer?
2: Um. Uh, Not um uh, trying not to do what you've done before, mm. going over all ground uh trying to be tr- true in whatever medium if if you're writing a satirical song that's fine, but not to be flippant uh, if it's something surreal to try to be really surreal, but in a in really imaginative mm. way. So, yeah, not going over old ground, um, not doing anything that's clichéd or hackneyed or something that you've done really well in the past, but you, that's, you know you brought something to fruition. We'll just leave that and uh, see what other territory there is to explore. Mm.
0: I'm interested in You, you mentioned the, uh, the idea of truth. Mm. What does that look like for you as a creative person?
2: Oh, it's just... Uh, it 's it 's just when you strike something you get a clear note. Mm. something rings true, right. yeah truth's an abstract comf- concept it 's probably better to say when something rings true mm. uh, then you know yeah, you know that something works, and often if it doesn 't then that 's great um, because you know you have to work on it and that 's uh, I, 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 uh, from no, every now and again, I give creative writing classes. And one good thing is to pay attention to your niggles. If, uh, if there's something you're writing that you think, well, it's good, but uh, this this part doesn't really work. It's niggling me a bit, and you mm-hmm. go away and leave it for a, a month or two, come back to it. And often the part that niggles is important because you have to throw it out and do something better.
0: Right. So going with this metaphor of, you know, ringing true, mm-hmm. do you think sometimes it's that we as creative people are sort of looking for a note, but maybe it's the wrong note. We're yeah. focusing on the wrong stuff.
2: Yeah, some, sometimes, yeah. Mm. 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 Mm.
0: That's interesting. And, and as I think you were saying before, what rings true is the way that you sort of experience that or measure that or look for that is going to be quite different based on what yeah. the art form is. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I, you know, for example, you're, you're looking at land wars. I imagine there's quite a sense of responsibility f- to honour that versus yeah. for example making something that might be surrealist or funny or yeah. uh, you know
2: yeah with the with the land wars um, th- this work that I'm doing I'll probably have um, there'll definitely be footnotes so I'll um, put people the reader on to like Vincent O'Malley's book of, if they want to know more about the Battle of Arakao so that my mention of that was just actually just me being present on, on the feels and I meet this white horse, this really, uh, very striking white horse, at the end of the paddock, and I have a little exchange with the white horse. And there's a on the on the property there's a barn with its side exposed, all these hay bales, and the bales are held together by red threads. So I uh, I take a photo of that and reference that in the piece. Uh, the red threads being a little bit like blood. Um, so that's one of the references. Mm. And I also reference, uh, a story that I was told of one of my colleagues at the English department. Her, one of her relatives had a, a property on, on near the Battle of Araka. At one time, I don't know when it was in the 60s, a big tree was blown down. And in the roots of the tree, there was these human bones. Wow. So that was a, a really strong story that mm-hmm. I, I felt I could include. Mm-hmm. The, yeah.
1: and so do you finish everything that you start, or are there like half-completed poems oh, no. in the
2: drawer? Yeah, there's things you should, yeah, things discarded, things that, <laughs> that you shouldn't um, have get published because they're not that great.
0: Well, I sort of think of it as some of them need to be sacrificed for the other ones. <laughs> yeah, were, I know
2: there's, uh, I've got a painter friend who's a Zen painter and during her art teacher, she's Swedish, um, and her art teacher used to tell her, Kill your babies. (laughs) Kill your babies. (laughs)
0: Terrifying and useful.
2: (laughs) Terrifying and useful. So, uh, and also I should mention to my wife, uh, 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 my partner, who's now Amala Wrightson, that's Amala is her um, Buddhist name. I always give um, whatever I write, which is near finishing, I always give that to her to read. She's got a great eye and a great ear, and she points out things which aren't that great. And I go, oh yeah, oh. oh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Damn it, you're right. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> and I go away. So it's really good if you if you have a, a partner, someone who knows you really well, and is a writer themselves, and you know, it's good to bounce things off. Mm. Nothing. This is a Buddhist teaching. Nothing we do is in isolation. We're all interconnected. Mm. Uh, so yeah that's important to realize that it's not just me doing it, but there's a lot of influences that are working on me and working through me historically and contemporarily. People I meet like Tom Rohr and Kingi e. Turner uh, from Te Pa. It's just um, just being true to those encounters and and really listening and absorbing and everything's teaching. That's another sort of Buddhist... Perspective. I think everything is teaching you. You just have to be aware of that. Mm.
0: It, it, it strikes me that a lot of these uh, things that you're talking about, which are, you know, are very, very useful for creative people, is really taking the time to stop and to notice mm. and to be really present. I mean, I really think that is a core of a lot of people's creative practice, whether it's through a Zen yes. lens or yeah. you know whatever lens they have. But it also strikes me that. And the way the, in a way, a lot of the world is moving more and more away from that space, you know that t- social media and yeah, rapid but, fire news cycles and.
2: But then again, there's COVID, and that's one of the, um, the things that COVID has taught us is you know to, take a deep breath, hopefully not inhale any... <laughs> 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 but, Behind you know, your mask here. Yeah, yeah. Take a deep breath with your mask, but no, you know, just stop. And, uh, okay, I can't do this. I can't go on my wonderful holiday that I'd planned. I've got to stay at home, especially during lockdown. Okay, so just take a pause. Uh, Go out into the garden, look at the sky. And I think that's, um, for a lot of artists and for everyone, that's been one of the benefits of what's been, you know, an awful occurrence is just, you know, to slow down a bit.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I think that was a very interesting um, aspect of lockdown, is that it mm. was an enforced slowdown. Yes. And, you yeah. know, I'm sure some people spent the whole 55 days or whatever it was playing video games, but I think for a lot of people, you know, you, you saw these suddenly there were these people walking around or riding their bikes with their kids or whatever. It was quite a. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you're right, it probably was a drawing back to that kind of space.
2: And that happened when we lived in upstate New York at the Rochester Zen Center in winter, uh, long winters, maybe six months of winters. Mm. And, of course, America is such a driven, busy society. But then uh, magically in the middle of winter there'd be this huge dumping of snow on Rochester Mm. and everything, the whole city would be forced to nearly come to a standstill because of all the the snow and the snow plows would be out But it was sort of quite magical That suddenly everything would be slowed down Because of the snow
1: mm. That's awesome um, We have unfortunately run out of time Because I know that this could go yeah. on for probably another hour um, But thank you so much For your time and your insight And your sharing um, That's really remarkable Thank you so much for being here
2: Thank you both Thanks. Thanks.
1: Thank you for joining us this show has been broadcast on FreeFM 89.0 and is brought to you by Creative Waikato. Have a great day.
0: For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This FreeFM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.